Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. Well, if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the <coughs> New Testament book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We're continuing with this series dealing with the King is Coming. Uh, many messages that surround the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been walking through and seeing as Jesus Christ has been predicted to come and what does that mean? We spoke about his two phases of his coming. His first phase is the rapture where he meets us in the air. And the second phase is when he comes back literally bodily and physically here on this earth. And we're going to continue with that line that we had spoke about the battle of Armageddon last uh, the man on the white horse, the identification of that. Now we're going to move specifically to the battle of Armageddon. So if you don't mind to take your copy of the word of God and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 19. The book of Revelation in chapter number 19. And you can look with us and let's see a little bit of what the Bible has to say concerning this. <coughs> The book of Revelation chapter number 19. Now we had started earlier in this chapter and began to explain that Jesus Christ coming and what his identification and what he looks like. Notice with me again as we pick it back up in the book of Revelation chapter 19 and notice with me starting at verse 11. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. That you may eat of the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and them that sat on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. Both of these were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that satteth upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and the fowls were filled with <laughs> with their flesh. And with this, we're going to see what is often commonly called the battle 
of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. Remember that during the tribulation period is a time where people are going to be under the judgment of God. The primary purpose of the tribulation period is to bring the Hebrew people back to himself. However, because of the influence of the Antichrist, there are going to be many people who reject God. And because they reject God, the Antichrist is going to stir them up to fight against God and his people. And so the scenario set towards the end of the tribulation that the Hebrew people in mass have rejected the Antichrist. That the beginning of the tribulation they thought the Antichrist was their Messiah. But they realized that this was a fake and a fraud and they rejected him. And they turned to Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Because of this there was a persecution upon the Hebrew people that the world in history has never seen before. Which is saying a lot compared to all of the persecutions the Hebrew people have gone through all throughout history. And now, once again, the Hebrew people are under siege. The Antichrist is going to organize the armies of the world. Remember, they're now in a one world government. And so all of the armies are now under the command of the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, in order to fight against God, is going to destroy the Hebrew people. Remember that God has made many promises to the Hebrew people that have yet to be fulfilled. And so if the Hebrew people are taken off the map and they're destroyed, then God cannot keep his promises. Therefore, God is a liar and God cannot be God. This is Satan's master plan. He knows that he can't fight against God directly. So if he could change God's character by making him a liar, then Satan has an opportunity to ascend himself up to heaven. Now, many people have asked why in the world would Satan do this? He's read the end of the book. He's read the Bible. He's more familiar with it than us. Why would he continue? Because pride blinds. Pride always blinds. You said, I don't think so. Yeah, well, let me tell you the places where you're blinded because of pride. All of us do. All of us have, because of pride, we don't see ourselves as we truly are. There are areas that we are missing in our lives that everyone else can see clearly. For Satan, everyone can say, you're going to lose, man. Why even try? But he's like, nah, I can do it. Pride blind. So he still thinks he could win. Even in the regardless of that it's written down in scripture, he still thinks he can win. So He's organizing the armies of the earth to fight and destroy the Hebrew people. Knowing in his mind that God, Jesus, is going to come down and he is trying to set the army up so they could stand against Jesus Christ when he comes. So this is the backdrop. This is where uh, things are going to occur. So let's cover a little bit more about this actual battle, the battle of Armageddon. We find again this battle found in the book of Revelation chapter number 19. We understand where the location is. That's south of Mount Carmel. Now if you're familiar with a Bible map, you have the uh, map of Israel. Israel, you'll have a little jut that goes out to the Mediterranean Sea. That's Mount Carmel. Attached to Mount Carmel, there's going to be a valley called the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel. It has several names, but the Valley of Megiddo is going to be the important name. The Valley of Armageddon is actually the, va- <laughs> the battle of the Valley of Megiddo. 
Napoleon Bonaparte, who would know? Napoleon is one of the people who took over all of Europe in the 1800s. When he marched over this area of Valley of Megiddo, he said it's the most perfect battleground that man has ever seen. And so he would know something. He was a master of battlefield tacticians. So he understood battlegrounds and he went there and he said, this is an important part. This is a place where battles will happen. <clears throat> and understood how the scenario was set up. So in this battle of Armageddon, you're going to have the armies of the world fighting against the Hebrew people. When they hear that Jesus Christ comes, what's going to happen is that the armies of the world are going to remove themselves from Jerusalem and kind of reconfigure at the Valley of Megiddo. May I pause and just give a little separate history type thing? Even the Muslim people believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. Did you know that? They believe he's coming back. And in order to prepare for his coming, they have buried their greatest warriors of all time outside of the gates of, of <laughs> Jerusalem, understanding that he's going to come in the east gate with the idea that they believe that their greatest warriors will pop up from the ground to fight against Jesus Christ to keep him from coming. So even the Muslim people believe Jesus Christ is coming again. Uh, they're not having the same application as we do, but uh, Jesus Christ is coming again. They even understand that there's going to be a battle occurring. And unfortunately, the dead will not rise and be able to fight against Jesus Christ and hold him back. So we'll take questions a little bit later. But in this, we understand that the puny arm of flesh can never fight against God and win. Man is very slow to learn this. Over and over, we keep fighting against God thinking we know better. We have a better plan. We have a better way. You see, whenever we take the Bible, you have to make a choice. Is God right or do I think I have a better plan? And every time we think we have a better plan, we're not going to win. God knows best. And it, as much as we may look at this battle and say, why in the world does they still plan for this? Why do they fight against it? The same question can be asked of us. Why don't you do things God's way? Over and over, we see that it's not going to work if we do it God's way. Just surrender and do it what God said in the first place, and it will go a lot better instead of fighting against him. But yet we still fight against them, think that we have a better way, think we have a better plan, think that the Bible is not for us or in this specific situation and that we have a better idea. Over and over, man is slow to learn. And over and over, we find out that God knew what he was talking about the entire time. This battle is so important, of course, that it's referred to in a number of Old Testament passages. We're not going to turn to them all, but let's just turn to one. Turn with me. To, we're coming back to Revelation 19 in just a second. But turn me, with me to the minor prophet book of Joel. The minor prophet book of Joel. The minor prophet book of Joel covers this specific incident of the battle of Armageddon in the book of Joel, chapter number three. The book of Joel, chapter number three. Now again, this is going to be a major event, so you would expect if it's a major event for it to be referred to many different times. The book of Joel, of course, is a minor prophet book, but remember 
the purpose of the minor prophets is that their major and message is that they give us a lot of clues, especially towards end time things. The book of Joel chapter number three, and notice with me starting at verse number nine, the book of Joel chapter three and verse number nine, it says, proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. So notice the audience here. It's not the Hebrew people. It's the Gentiles that's being addressed. Here's a message that the Gentiles are supposed to know. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears, and let the weak say, I am strong. Let's pause here. So here, you can hear the proclamation of the Antichrist saying, listen, we need everyone to get ready to go to war. We need everyone to fight. All you Gentiles, come on, get ready to go. I want you to take your... um, farming equipment and turn it to swords. Let's turn it to weapons. Gather everything you can. We've got a battle to fight and we've got a battle to win. Notice with me in verse 11. Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen. Gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. So here it's it's playing this uh, scenario up that the Gentiles to gather themselves together. And as they're gathering themselves together, the the human penman of Joel is now looking up and said, all right, God, you see they're gathering together. You know that this is your time to come. Why do I want these people to gather together? Because I want you to hurry up and come back. We know that this is the things that need to be set up. Gather yourselves together. <clears throat> round about tither cause, <clears throat> cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Verse 12, let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is also the valley of Jezreel or the valley of Megiddo or what we would call Armageddon. So the same valley. Let the wake heathen be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. So God is saying he's coming to judge those heathen that are gathered together. Now that they're gathered together, he is going to make this judgment. Verse number 13, put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down and the press is full. The fats overflow for their wickedness is great. What he is saying, and we'll get to this and back in Revelation just a second, is that there's going to be just a lot of blood spilt and there's going to be a great feast that is going to be prepared. We'll get to that in a second. Verse number 14 is going to be very key. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now, whenever you see where it says the day of the Lord in the Bible, this is a phrase that carries the idea of the day that judgment comes. So that's just something as you're reading through your Bible, that when you study things, you'll come into the day of the Lord. This is a day when judgment comes. So here's the scenario. The heathen are gathering around. We know where they're gathering together, the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Megiddo, the place we call Armageddon. And all of the heathen are going to be gathered together and God is going to come back to bring judgment. And when he does, it says multitudes and multitudes. So now we know that there's many, many, many people there 
in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now this is going to be key. Now this valley of decision is not a decision that the people make. The people have already made their decision whether they're going to follow God or not. The valley of decision here is the decision God makes. And what we have in two parables called the parable of the wheat and the tares and the parable of the sheep and the goats. That God knows who is his. As we had mentioned here, God knows who his children is. You don't forget who your children are. So God comes down and he separates all of those who have accepted him as savior from those who have not accepted him as savior. Those who have been accepted as savior, the sheep and the wheat, they're going to be set aside and they're going to be protected. Whereas the rest of the world will be destroyed at that time. That is God's decision. This is not a decision someone makes. This is a decision at this place where God makes for them because they've already decided to follow Christ or not follow Christ. And this is going to be a big deal. Again, Joel is giving this event. The book of Revelation gives us more details. Turn back with me to Revelation 19. So Jesus Christ comes back and we spend a lot of time talking about his names, his four different names that were given in this passage, his description of whom he is. Then we see as Jesus Christ comes back, he comes back with us. All of those people who have accepted Jesus as your savior, what's going to happen is that we're going to be raptured up. When we get raptured up, we get a brand new body and we get a brand new clothes and we're going to come back with him to, uh, on this earth. But Jesus doesn't need us. We're just there as window dressing because Jesus is going to defeat all of the enemies of the world with just a word. When it talks about this poetical term of a sword going out of his mouth, it's a poetical way, a visual way of trying to see he's just going to say some words and all the armies will be defeated right then and there. We're just there to watch what happens. But Jesus is going to defeat them all. Then we could see (laughs) this event As Jesus Christ comes to rule and to reign, he's going to divide the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, and he is going to destroy all of those people that try to fight against him. Which brings us to a second thing, the doom of the beast and the false prophet. Now we had spoken about this unholy trinity before. You had the false, uh, the beast and the false prophet. Remember the beast is going to be the antichrist. The Antichrist, the one who was the human instrument that God or that Satan tried to use to unite the world. Then you have the false prophet who was the person who united all of the religions together, this coexist idea. So they are going to be destroyed. Notice verse number 20. Uh, Verse number 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him and with, <laughs> with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. When Jesus Christ comes back with his armies, there's no delay in getting this victory. 
Then we see that the beast and the false prophet are going to be cast alive into this burning pit, this fire, lake of fire. Notice the word alive. They were cast alive. This is important for our understanding that when people go to an awful place called hell, they still feel all the sensations. They feel pain. They feel loneliness. They feel depression. The thing is, is that there's no relief. They will feel all that pain, but they will not go be able to go to sleep, pass out, go on vacation, enter into a coma. They enter into this place alive and will continue to feel those sensations forever. It is an awful, awful place. And anyone who has not accepted Jesus Christ as your, their savior will go to that awful place. Someone will say, well, isn't that an awful God to send someone to that awful place? No, 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 no. God has done everything he can because of his goodness to keep people from there. Do you know that in order to have your sins forgiven, you don't have to go on a great quest to go slay a dragon? That in order to go to heaven, you don't have to go do uh, some magnificent act of attrition or contriteness. You don't have to climb stairs with your knees and pray to all the saints. In order to go to heaven, you don't have to pay money to the church. You don't have to pay a certain amount of money. You don't have to pay a million dollars to guarantee your spot. In order to go to heaven, you don't have to um, go to church. In order to go to heaven, you don't have to turn over a new leaf. In order to go to heaven, you don't have to be born into the right family. In order to go to heaven, it is a free gift. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see anyone that goes to that awful place called hell is doing so in spite of all of the efforts that Jesus made so they didn't have to go. Jesus, who was God, robed himself in flesh and dwelt among us, lived the same life that you and I lived, went through the same temptations, the same troubles, the same heartbreaks. Then he died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. He rose again the third day to prove that he was God and that God was satisfied with the payment. And now it's just a free gift. You have to accept it for yourself. It is that easy. No one has to go to hell. God has made it at the bottom bargain of free. That means the smallest child can get saved. The most senior saint can get forgiveness. The most hardened criminal can be forgiven. The most distant person around the world can get saved. It is for everyone, full, free, and forever. And so is God cruel by sending people to that awful place called hell? No, it is a merciful God. You say, but why can't he just let everyone go? Because we've already seen what happens when you let something that's not perfect into a perfect place. What happens? Well, you have the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, there was one rule. One. And they couldn't even keep that one rule and ruined it. People say, why is this world so bad? Well, because he allowed imperfection into the world. And we see what happens. We don't want heaven messed up. If we were to go in without having our sins taken care of, we would mess it up. Amen. Amen. 
We're too selfish not to. We're too greedy not to. We're too much in the flesh not to. God had to forgive us of our sins. And on, with that forgiveness, when we go to heaven, we get a brand new body that can't sin against God. But that's out of his goodness and graciousness to keep it perfect, to keep it pure. Is God bad? No, he's done everything he can to offer forgiveness full, free, and forever. He's done everything he can not to allow people to go there. People go there in spite of God. In fact, the Bible talks about in a different passage, I think it's Corinthians, but it says they, do, they oppose God to their own destruction. They oppose God to their own destruction. God has given them a free gift and they slap it. I don't want it. I can do it myself. They're only hurting themselves. So when these people are cast in that awful place called hell, it's because they rejected God. Well, these people rejected God. Yeah, back in Revelation chapter five, we're not turning there because we covered it before. It says all the people were hid in the caves and the dens and asking for the mountains to fall upon them and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. Remember, no one's really afraid of a little baby lamb. When they said hide us from the wrath of the lamb, they knew exactly who it was that was bringing judgment and they still refused to turn to him. They, they opposed themselves to their own destruction. So God is not a bad God, but this is their own doing. They rejected his free gift. They rejected him. And there's a consequence for it. And they're cast alive. It's an awful, awful thing. But yet, it's a real thing. And then we have here the sad supper. At the end, when Jesus speaks and everyone dies who has not accepted Christ as their Savior, everyone who opposes against God, now you're left here with millions of bodies. Aren't you glad you don't have to be on that burial detail? God says, I'll take care of this. And he commands the fowls of the air, the birds, (laughs) to come down and start eating their flesh. The cleanup crew. We know that there's many scavenger birds who would have no problems with this. And they're having their sad supper. Interesting to note that there are two suppers mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. Notice the first supper, verse number seven, verse number seven, Revelation 19, verse seven. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor for him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she be arrayed in, in fine linen, white and clean. For the fine linen is of the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, right, blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. So at the beginning we open up with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Anyone who's accepted Jesus as their personal Savior. You're invited to be there. Oh, what a wonderful thing that we have an invitation to come and dine, to be there. However, we could see at the end, there is another supper that's prepared, a sad supper, a supper of death, where everyone who did not accept Jesus's invitation is slain and killed. And it's the birds who will be having a feast and suffering that day. And again, I want to remind you that it is your choice which supper you're a part of. You can choose. Now, it's not a forced choice. Isn't that wonderful? You get to choose yourself. Do I accept Christ as my Savior 
or do I reject him and oppose him to my own destruction? God is a good God. He's done everything he can, but because he's a good God, he won't force people to believe and trust in him. That is a choice that each person has to make. So the question is to you, dear friend, have you ever come to the place where you chose to accept Jesus as your personal savior, where you asked him for forgiveness of sins? If you have, praise the Lord. Second question, are you able to trust God's promises or do you think that you have a better way? God knows what he's doing. Satan opposes himself all the time. He still thinks he can win. He says, I don't have to do it God's way. I could do it my way and I could still manage to win. I could manipulate it. I could fool it. I could follow the steps. Pride is blinding. I don't have to follow the Bible. I don't have to believe what the Bible says. I could pick and choose what I think the Bible says. I want to remind you that it is not Burger King. You cannot have it your way. You have to have it the way that God gave it to you. You accept it as a whole. And at any time that we choose to reject the Bible on any issue, we oppose him to our own destruction. God is a good God. He has chosen or has given us the choice. And we could choose to follow him and receive the blessings and rewards or we could choose to oppose him to our own destruction. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.